this is Steve Balton. You're here on My Turning Point, where this week I am joined by a long-time friend, System of Down frontman Serge Tankian, to talk about his new film, Truth to Power, the role of activism in music, and so much more. As always with Serge, man, it's a great conversation. So hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Thanks. Where are you these days? Uh, Los Angeles. I'm in my studio in LA. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so wait, yeah. now the studio, where's is the studio like uh close to the house or you have a yeah, separate yeah. house? It's, it's next to the house. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <sighs> Not bad. Not bad. How you been, buddy? Long time. I've been, I've been good. Been super busy. It's been, you know, such a weird year. Mm. In the sense of, you know, everyone's home and has nothing else to do. So they're like, sure, we want to talk. So, right. you know, I've done <laughs> literally hundreds of interviews, you know, and I mean, it's been cool, fascinating stuff. I mean, I did 90 minutes with Stevie Nicks, 60 minutes with Lenny Kravitz, but you know, ah, it's wow, just been such a, a, yeah, they have, been, you know, and it's funny because I was, I mean, literally it was 90 minutes with Stevie Nicks and it was like, well, you know what? I get it because Stevie Nicks is 72 years old. We did it on a Friday night and it's like, if she's going to talk to me, she's right. got nothing else to do. Like, this is what <laughs> she's committed her Friday night to do it, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. what about you? You were back and forth, right? You were in New Zealand for a while. Yeah, we were in New Zealand till October. So we were there during the original lockdown, um, which which didn't last as long as here. Um, and they really had a handle on it um, between communication by the government and the border. They immediately stopped all people coming into the borders and uh, quarantine to a quarantine at the border, even residents and citizens uh, coming back. And a very comprehensive uh, tracking system of, of anyone that has COVID, like wherever you go, you kind of do a, you know, scan a QR code and it worked. It worked. Uh, schools were open, which was great. Seeing my son go to school now, <laughs> and we came back here and it's, you know, a bit of a mess. Uh, you know, quarantine, no quarantine, quarantine, no quarantine, um, open, closed, stores open, stores closed. So it's kind of like, you know, um, it is what it is. Uh, so just, uh, dealing with it, you know, doing a lot of, a lot of work. I'm, I've been pretty busy as well with work here and, uh, stuff happening here. So it's, it's okay. It's been good. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a mess here and it's been unpredictable. You know, I mean, the, the hope is obviously it's funny. I saw that you guys just rescheduled that show for the fourth time. Fingers crossed that it's actually going to happen in yeah. October, but you know, Michael Rapino just said this morning that, you know, live shows are, are still on schedule to happen right. in the summer. And hopefully now that we actually have real leadership, you know, we can make up, you yeah. know, basically yeah. what was lost of a year of, you know, no vaccines, no plan, no, right. you know, no tracing, no nothing. It's amazing what happens when you actually have someone who I don't know is at least trying yeah, absolutely. No, it's a relief having new leadership in the U.S., obviously. Um, the vaccine thing, Steve, I don't know. Like, I, I, I just got my second shot yesterday, actually. I'm lucky, one of the lucky ones. But um, there are a lot of people that don't want to take it. So six months later, I think, you know, when, you know, they're still trying to figure out how long your immunity, uh, you, how much coverage you have in terms of time as far as immunity. But if six months later, I'm, I may have to take a booster shot for years because, you know, if enough people don't take the vaccine, then you're not going to get immunity, herd immunity, right? So you, you have to kind of keep on taking these shots. Um, 
which is fine. At least there is a vaccine now, you know, which is which is great. But you know, the the rollout of the vaccine and the time it's taking for governments to implement it and 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 receive the vaccine, and it's crazy how long it's taking as well. Which is anyway. Um, Maybe we should talk about music. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's interesting because I mean, but you know what? I mean, if you look at it, we'll come on to the film in a second, which I've seen. But, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that, you know, it's funny, there's so many directions to go in with this film. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's always a million things to talk about with you because we always end up on the phone for an hour. But it's interesting. One <laughs> of the things that I thought was cool, I did this with Tom a few months ago, and I kind of want to start with this with you because we, Tom and I did this for his book. You know, yeah. and I know that you were supposed to pick some protest songs, but it's funny because rather than just starting with protest songs, what he and I did is sort of tracing the musical activism. And it's funny because I'm watching the film, right? And he started at Cal State Northridge and I went to Cal State Northridge for two years before I transferred. I actually was going to major in business because I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I want to do. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I've got to see sons good at fucking business. Let's do it. You know? Yeah, exactly. I, and of course, I went on to be English major. right? But it's funny because... As those parallels, right? What years were you there, Steve? Uh, I was there for um, 87, 88, 89, and then transferred to NYU. So 87, 88, 88, 89. We were there at the same time. I was there 85 to 89. Really? Yeah. We might we might have seen each other at the Odeon, uh, the library or whatever, you know, or the student <laughs> hall. Well, you know what's funny about that, though, is the whole concept for this podcast yeah. of the protest songs came from that time. And I want to go back to where your musical activism started because I remember being at CSUN and, you know, volunteering with Amnesty International, seeing those Amnesty tours in the 80s, right. then working with Greenpeace when I was at CSUN. So for you, where was sort of your musical activism awakening? Because that 80s period was such a prolific time with you 2 and REM and the Amnesty tours and Springsteen and Peter Gabriel. True. That was, that was, you know, Biko, um, you know, I just finished your sentence. Um, you know, all of it. Yeah. It was a very inspiring time in terms of activism. We are the world, right? Um, and, uh, so many, so many different, it it was a very awakening time in music and activism and going to CSUN. Um, I became an activist, as you know, because we've talked about this many times before I became an activist mostly because of the hypocrisy of the, uh, the U.S. government not properly recognizing the Armenian genocide until December 2019, just a, you know, <laughs> year, year and a little ago. Um, it made me feel like if this is a historical fact that's being pushed under the carpet for geopolitical or economic purposes, then how many other things are there that are being suppressed, uh, other truths that are being suppressed because someone's making a buck or, or, or there's other nefarious reasons. So that made me an activist ultimately. Um, and I was an activist before becoming an artist. And so to me, the film is that it's an activist journey through music, uh, where an activist has a very little voice before the, his band explodes and, and becomes more, has a wider reach. And then the message becomes more, you know, uh, accented and, and, and pronounced. And then you see the repercussions of being an activist and an artist, as well as the fruits of that labor. To me, that's the interesting thing about the film Truth to Power, actually. Well, it's interesting because, and it's funny because you also talk about the fact that you start as a poet. So, right. you know, music was, was a later thing for you, you know? And at what point did you realize though, as you started to merge the two, the music and the activism, the extent of power you would have as an artist, as an activist, using your voice because again when you start off i mean 
you have no idea the system of a down is going to become, as you say, it's funny, you say it's like went from this to this. You have no idea that system of a down is going to become system of a down. There's no clue. Right. True. Um, you know, especially the type of music we played, it was so kind of crazy musical gymnastics to the left, very hard, you know, and, and radio changed, uh, luckily, as we were coming into our, our, our own radio's format changed, you know, and, and we were lucky enough to be able to be a part of that, you know, LA heavy, heavy music scene in that sense. But when did I realize that? I guess, I guess I realized it uh, right after 9-11 when I wrote the um, uh, essay called Understanding Oil, which is right now used in universities to teach essay writing, apparently, <laughs> that I've seen online. At the time, there was, uh, you know, staunch re reactionism against uh, you know, anything that was questioning U.S. Uh, geopolitics, uh, you know, and 50 years of propping up dictators in the Middle East and one-sided policy with Israel and Palestine and, you know, uh, choosing a unilateral approach to revenge versus a multilateral approach toward justice having to do with finding and prosecuting those who were responsible for the 9-11 attacks. All of these are very logical and, and make sense reading now, but at the time it was a very hot kind of reactionism prevailing clear channel was taking all the songs off the radio our our single um which was chop suey was off the air uh on the week of 9 11 where we had the number one billboards uh, uh um record in the country um and and we were on tour to add to the fucking stress um a week after 9 11 we're on tour with daily kind of television flashings of red and orange, uh, you know, warning signs and Bush getting on TV and saying there might be other terrorist attacks coming. And we're just like, we're in front of 15, 20,000, you know, uh, fans a night. And we're like, you know, just, just really stressful. Like, you know, and that's when I realized the power of words being projected because when I wrote them, I, I would always do that. I would write, you know, ideas down, uh, interpretations, you know, uh, analyses, you know, and, uh, online and I'd never think twice about it, but, but here it just exploded. And then I'm like, shit, there is someone listening, you know? Well, it's, I mean, there's so many directions to go on with that. And it's so funny because I, I think of like one, one of the scenes in the movie that made me laugh was, I believe it was John was they were talking about like not alienating half the audience. Right. And I've had that conversation with actually Lars from Metallica, who's a great dude. And he said, one of the reasons they stay out of politics is because they know their audience is half and half. But I admit for me, and again, I love Lars. He's a great dude. I mean, really great dude. But I, I gravitate to, I, I think of like a Kurt Cobain, who famously said, if you're a rapist, homophobic, any of this, stay the fuck away from our shows. Or Eminem, who in the last four years was like, if you support Trump, don't follow me anymore. Fuck you. And, yeah. and to me, I respect the hell out of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I so for you, what you choose to do with, with your music and, and your art. And, and, and as you can see in the film, we don't even always agree within the same band as to which direction that should be, you know, and in terms of whether we should, you know, stick to uh, what we believe in as our mantra or whether we should keep our base more, you know, diverse. And, and that happens too. And to me, the beauty, <clears throat> the beauty of a powerful band is that push and pull, I think, because if there's really a very uniform direction within a band, their music is probably not very interesting. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, I think then talk about the checks and balances that gives you in the sense of, of, you know, because it's like, it's also important in terms of, you know, because I, I mean, look, when it comes to activism, 
And especially with all the atrocities in the world, and especially just all the atrocities in the last couple of years, you know, and obviously the film focuses on the revolution. I mean, the film ends with the, you know, successful revolution in Armenia and everything, and we'll come to that. But it's interesting. There is a tendency to get, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking? You know, you can get impassioned. You can get fevered. You can get, you know, I mean, look, dude, I get angry all the fucking time <laughs> at this point, you know? So talk about having, you know, the checks and balances then of, of having the band who, you know, sometimes doesn't agree and the value of that because it keeps you sort of calmer. And it's like, you can't just do this, do this, you know? And it's like, because again, right. if I get pissed, if I get pissed off, right. Who gives a shit? No one's listening. If you get pissed off, there's millions of people, as you saw with nine 11 listening. Well, there's a lot of people listening to you too, Steve. So, <laughs> so, so you might want to over, so you might want to check yourself, but, um, no, you're right. Uh, I think those checks and balances, I guess, are important, you know, because it puts things into perspective as, look, dude, there's three other guys in this band and we don't necessarily agree with this particular point or or blatantly put right after I did, you know, right after 9-11, I was on Howard Stern defending my words in what I had written and posted online. And the guys called me into room. We're about to start a tour. I remember we're in Denver. I was up all night couldn't sleep because of, of everything going on. And they're like, you're a smart guy. We respect you. Are you trying to get us killed? That was literally <laughs> what I was, you know, that's literally what I was told. And I, I just felt so bad. I'm like, guys, I am so sorry. I love you all. And of course, you know, I don't want any harm to come to any of us. And, you know, but I'm telling the truth. And they're like, yeah, we know it's the truth but you don't have to always say it. And that's the thing that I can't fucking help it. (laughs) I can't fucking help it. That if it's the truth, I have to say it no matter who gets mad. And that's, that's the thing. That's the activist, you know? So, so let's go back for a second. When you, again, as I said, I want to kind of trust when you think of, you know, those musicians, those musical activists who kind of would be, you know, the branches, let's say, okay, let's look at it as a family tree. You know, who, who are the musical, the musical activists who, for you, were sort of out of, I can't talk this morning, but that's all right. The sort of, <laughs> sort of the forefathers for, you know, your activism and mixing activism and music. Um, there are a lot, you know, Tom Morello just asked me this for his serious show. And, and I said, well, starting with you, Tom, like, you know, cause Tom and I have been friends for many, many years and worked together with Access of Justice Radio Network. You know, we had a radio network. We had a nonprofit organization. His dedication and hard work and inspiration really kind of influenced me a lot in terms of made me work harder at the things that I believe in and stand up for the things, you know. So he had a definite strong impression from a peer, day-to-day kind of peer in my life as a friend. But, you know, you've got Bob Dylan, you've got uh, John Lennon, you've got, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bob Marley, who made you dance positively and rebelled at the same time, you know. Um, you've got, you know, uh, Peter Gabriel with Biko. You've got the whole 80s movement of different artists speaking truth to power, Springsteen. And I mean, there are so many, like, you know, I, I'm probably not thinking of 90%. I'm just throwing whatever. But, and also, honestly, Armenian artists that that you know growing up they were speaking truth to power you know about what happened to our past and the genocide in in music in armenian and and i followed that type of music a lot like revolutionary music um and you know um i don't know um 
to me, any, any artist that even in one song, even if their whole career were love songs, but wrote this one incredible song, like War Pigs, you know, mm-hmm. Black Sabbath, right? Ozzy Osbourne wrote those lyrics. Like, it, it's incredible. Like, I, it just makes an impact. No, it's so funny. I actually just spoke with Tony Iommi yesterday. Cool. How's he doing? You know, he's doing, he's Tony. You know, it's funny. A lot of these veteran artists, it's, it's hard for them to not be on the road because yeah. they've spent their whole life on the road. Right. I mean, it's funny. I interviewed Ozzy a few months ago for a piece on Ready Road and, and he's just, I'm losing my fucking mind. He's like, this is the longest I've ever been fucking home in my life. He's like, Sharon and I are just getting on each other's tits so much, <laughs> you know? Like, and it's not that he doesn't love her. It's just like, he's like, I've never been home this long in my life. Yeah. You know, so for a lot of these older artists, it's it's kind of fun, you know? It's interesting, but, you know, there are so many, but it's interesting because one of the things I think that's fascinating too, and I think you and I have talked about this, and Matt Berninger from The National, I absolutely love that band, phenomenal songwriter. And he and I talked about this as he got older and as he became a father, you know, Gary Clark Jr., who's another great guy, said the same thing your priorities change. He's like, Gary Clark Jr. was like, when I was in my 20s, right? I was looking more to have fun. Then I'm in my 30s. I became a dad. And your whole view on the world changes. And so for you, have you noticed, and especially when you go back and do a film where you can sort of trace the journey when you're looking at the stuff, I would imagine as well that your views have changed so much since becoming a father. And, and it's interesting because you mentioned John Lennon. And to me, he was the greatest political songwriter of all time because he made it so personal. Yeah. But he's a guy who everything you could see was done through the filter of the family and his right. his micro universe. Because that's what phase he was in his life, you know. Um, yeah, I, I my life, you know, absolutely. I think you know, becoming a parent is is a life changing event, and you reprioritize everything that you have. Um, and and this being, I always say that, uh, a, you know, someone our biggest fears is our parents dying until we have children. And that switches, that fear switches to our, the loss of our children, which becomes larger than our parents dying. Um, it's a very interesting biological thing. And for me, um, it definitely made me reprioritize my life so I could spend more time with my family and spend time with him growing up. And, you know, and it's not like, you know, I'm in my 50s and I've toured for 25 years. So it's not like uh, I haven't done it. You know, I've, I've gone through the whole process. I've toured a majority of the countries in the world. It's funny, my, we got my son a globe. So he points, he goes, dad, have you been here? I'm like, yep. Have you been here? Yep. Have you been here? Yep. I'm like, no, I haven't been there. I haven't been there, but I've been here. <laughs> you know, it's like, he goes, I want to go. And I'm like, okay, you will go one day, you know? Um, so it's, you know, it, it definitely changes everything. Well, but it's interesting. Have you also found that it's sort of changed your priorities in terms of activism and the things that you focus on? And, and I guess that's what I was getting, not just to it, but also, you know, the things that are different. And it's funny, even with, you know, focusing, you know, on having the genocide in Armenia recognized, I would imagine that becomes a different thing because it becomes, you become so much more tied in with your heritage and right. your ancestry. So have you found that your causes and your activism and the things that you've become interested in have changed as well since becoming a parent? The most significant change I've noticed is that before I would speak, um, I still speak truthfully. The difference is before, if I would say, fuck you to a world leader and challenge them right now, I would, I would basically debase all of their philosophies and ask them to resign. 
And that is only because I care about my life more so that I can be around for my son more. Well, it's also interesting that you say that because I was talking about this with the chicks when they were on the show. And, you know, obviously they're a band who, who <laughs> took even more shit than you did for not compromising. I'll tell you, and you, I'll tell you Steve, at, right after 9-11, those that basically said this is happening because of these reasons immediately was Maynard, got booed, <clears throat> Madonna, the Dixie Chicks, Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine, and myself system of a down. So <clears throat> that's it. I don't remember anyone else. I mean, everyone else was just tight lipped and you know, whatnot, which is fine. But you know, yeah, they took a lot of shit. Yeah, they really did. And we were talking about though, how your views change as you get older. And it's funny for me, for example, right. We were talking about musical activists. Absolutely love you too. One of my favorite bands of all time, but as a U2 fan, I did have a big problem with, you know, Bono <clears throat> having a relationship with George W. Bush. But as I've gotten older, and again, this is just me, probably saved millions of lives and brought in so much money. And it's funny. Do you find that as you've gotten older, you say you used to say fuck you to a world leader. Now you'll ask him to resign and say something. Do you also find that as you've gotten older, you get more, um, you get more understanding of differing viewpoints and you get more reasonable? You get more reasonable and diplomatic. That, that is true. And I think it's just you, you become more of a realist, realpolitik kind of um, you, you, you're still an activism at heart, but you realize that you can make more change if you do it this way. And so you do it that way. I've become more like that, but I'm, I'm still very um, careful uh, because I, I don't want to lose my neutrality as much as possible. Well, it's interesting too. I mean, let's go back to the film for a second. It's funny because, you know, as I mentioned, going through this journey and look, I'm sure there were things that were absolutely fascinating to watch in there because as I talked about, as I talked about with Tony yesterday, because they were just doing a 40th anniversary edition right. of heaven and hell. Yeah. Our, you know, he probably hasn't listened to that record in 39 years, you know, <laughs> and he was saying that. So it's tell like, the name of the songs. <laughs> what's that? He's like, tell me the name of the songs. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I don't, you know, and that's the case for most every artist. They don't go back and revisit stuff. So when you're watching this old footage or looking at these stories or having to revisit it, were there things that really surprised you that you're like, oh shit, I haven't thought about that in a million years? Or, or actually that you can even step back and look at it from the perspective of a fan? A lot of it. I mean, going back to my my Armenian high school, going, you know, and, and revisiting that. And, and then the way that the story is put together is also very interesting because you make connections you never even made in your own life even though that's your life and you've lived it. But then the way the story is put together in chronology within that hour 20, as you mentioned, is a, is a unique thing. And, and it makes you realize certain things about yourself that you never did because someone made a film of it, out of it, you know? Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of those, Steve. There's a lot of those. But, uh, <clears throat> but it's good. I, I, I'm, I'm happy and I really love working with Garin Hovanesian, the director. We've made, we're making our third movie now together, um, I'm helping him produce another film, this time about the Artsakh War that just happened in Armenia, another documentary. Um, it's called 44. It'll be out hopefully this year sometime. Um, but we also made another film called I Am Not Alone about the Velvet Revolution in Armenia, the Peaceful Velvet Revolution. It's an award-winning film, still going to different film festivals and winning awards. And that will be out this year as well, which I've also scored and executive produced. Um, yeah, I'm liking, I'm liking this, besides uh, composing for a film, I'm also liking the idea of helping stories come to life, you know, producing basically, you know, and because 
I, when, when, when a story is that important, it's the activist in me that goes, people have to hear this. People have to see this. Right. So I'm, 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 I'm working on that now as well, which is a new <clears throat> sphere creatively for me. Well, and it's also, it's interesting because that ties in so much with the activism though, of being able to tell these stories and being able to share them. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny for you. I mean, you know, as you've gotten into this, you know, talk about, you know, realizing that again, this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, realizing the power mm-hmm. of your voice. Right. You know, again, that is, there are many ways to kind of bring out the truth uh, through films, through music, through speaking, through social media. And when you use as many available avenues to express yourself, the, the message becomes multiplied and more powerful. Well, it's funny. Let's come back to your film for a second. Uh, you know, Truth to Power. And it's interesting because you say there were many things you realized. What were a couple of the things that really surprised you the most when you went back and watched this or things that you're like, I hadn't thought about that or I had never noticed that or connections you hadn't seen before? I, I, I guess it's the evolution of the artist that in your mind, you just live day to day and you don't know where you are. You know, you just do something every day. Years go past, right? You know, I started playing music and at CSUN, uh, I was 19, I got a little Casio keyboard <clears throat> and I started playing that and I was, you know, just experimenting. It was a way of meditating away from my studies and all the problems I was having at the time in my life as a teen, uh, late, late teen, I guess, um, young adult. And, you know, and I did have more words. Um, I had more expressions. I wrote more poetry. I had a journal every night and all of that. I realized that more, you know, dealing and watching the film that I was a word man not a bird man. Um, and, <laughs> and I became a composer and I write less in terms of words. Um, but I write music way more and, and I'm more prolific at that sphere, which is why I started art to confuse myself into another exploratory <laughs> dimension and, and create stuff. Um, you know, I think that's what was the most surprising that I, as, as yourself, you know, the first words you ever wrote as a journalist versus now, you know, you may not really know that connection, not really think about it, but seeing that trajectory in front of your eyes really makes you go, whoa, you know, that's what it was. Well, it's funny. Do you realize that when you look back on that kid who was such a word man, does it, does, does it, it it's funny because I go through these phases, right? Where I just become re-obsessed with words all the time. So I'm going to put you on the spot because I've been asking people this and it's been really fun to explore. What, what's your favorite line? song lyric ever written and what to you is the vote for the best song like the best written song of all time not necessarily the best song but the best lyrics all right see i don't have a favorite ice cream i don't people ask me for my favorite song from our own repertoire i don't have one i i'm the worst person to ask for this so i would say nothing <laughs> nothing <laughs> no i don't have a favorite bro i i you can't compare you know bob dylan's you know, lyrics with John Lennon's lyrics. You can't compare, you know, you just, it's, it's not fair. It's just not fair. Uh, fair enough. But it's funny because sometimes there's things that just punch you in the gut, you know, it's like, it's not necessarily, it's like James Taylor, Fire and Rain is my favorite song of all time. Is that right. the best song of all time? No. Right. You know, but it's that's the song that just has resonated with me for, for my entire life. So I don't necessarily say it's the best, right. but it's simply, yeah. So, you know, I will ask if there's one, because usually there is one that comes to mind where you're like, all right, that's it, you know. But I know, actually, we've had this conversation before, and I know you're not going to answer me. I never give up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude, fair enough. 
But now it's interesting for you then watching this film and, and seeing your love of words early on. Does it reinvigorate that love at all? Do you? And we're going to yeah. come out of the scene in a second, by the way, just so I don't forget this in my mind with Rick Rubin and the chop suey thing, because I've been in that library and I fucking love that library. Yeah, I know. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, but, but come back first to your, your sort yeah, of how it, it reinvigorated you for words. Yeah. It made me realize that I need to write again. I need to keep a journal. I, Cause I used to do that. That was, that was the thing that made me write a lot. I had a notebook next to my bed and before I slept, I would just write. And a lot of it would be stream of consciousness, some prose, um, but it, it really, whatever experiences I had during the day, I was able to kind of lay it out, whatever thoughts, feelings, emotions were there. And that grew, 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 grew into a large number of notebooks over the years. And a lot of it turned into lyrics and, and, and some not. And two of them came out as poetry books, Cool Gardens and Glaring Through Oblivion. And uh, so, yeah, I got to start that. And it's also a great way of getting shit off your chest, you know. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's a good... Writing a journal is, is a is good psychotherapy, basically. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Have you, because Tom and I talked about this for his book, which he put out last year, the, the photo one, yeah. you know, which was, I believe it was a Tashin one. It's mm-hmm. when you go back and look through all these journals, you know, you say there's been a couple of poetry books, but will there ever be, and especially since you're so into writing, does it invigorate the idea of doing any sort of memoir? Uh, I've, you know, for years, Steve, I've had an idea of writing, um, not so much a memoir, but a book with the um, theme of the intersection of justice and spirituality. And, um, and it's a question that I asked, I got the honor to ask the Dalai Lama years ago for this film that they were making. They, I had a one-on-one interview where I can ask him two questions. Moby was there. He asked two questions. When next time you interview him, ask him about it. Um, and that was one of my questions, which was really interesting. And I want to use his response as the kind of preface of the book. Um, but I want to tell short stories in, in a very Malcolm Gladwell style, uh, each chapter being a different story with the uh, kind of common denominator of justice meets spirituality. Um, and, and a lot of them will be stories from my life or my career and, and whatnot. So that's the format that I want to do um, yeah, as a book. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's funny because I mean, it's there's so many different directions to go in with that. And it's like, for example, I'm waiting on a Willie Nelson interview I'm supposed to do soon. And, you know, he has a new book coming out called Letters to America. And it's like, there's so many different directions to go in versus simply doing the linear memoir. I love Moby too. He's one of the smartest guys in the world, though, man. He's, I, I'm sure his questions were fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. It was. Um, but again, I want to come on to the, the Rick Rubin scene for a second because I, you know, I love Rick and he's another just absolutely brilliant guy. And, you know, so talk about that, that setting, that environment. And, and I love the, you know, how it just was, he was like, open a book. And that was the, you know, and it's funny because do you find that, that having that experience, it's funny when you look at these people, you know, that have influenced your life, whether it's Tom, whether it's Rick, do you still use those things going forward? Oh, of course. I I still, every time I, every time I sing uh, a lyric, I hear Rick's voice in my head saying, pronounce it better so people can understand it. You know, it's like, it's just one of those things that sticks. And yes, the scene you're talking about is during the writing of, uh, is it Chop Suey? Yes, Chop Suey. Um, I was kind of, we were in the studio working with Rick and I was stuck on the middle eight lyric. Um, And, uh, and he's like, let's take a break. Let's go to, let's go to my house. And so we went there and we sat in his library 
And he's like, pick a book, any book. It's like a magician, you know, pick a card, any card. So I pick one, utilizing the universe to guide you. He goes, open to any page. I open to a page, put my finger on a word. And that became, that, that concept became the middle eight part of the song, Father, have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It was Jesus's story from a scientific book. It was just like, and it just, it, it matched so perfectly that there's no way I could have figured out how to match. Like, you know, it was, it was just the universe conspiring, you know, it was just beautiful. And uh, I described that scene in the film and where we actually recorded was at a Shangri-La studios uh, sitting outside where we taped him uh, talking about first seeing system and all of that in the film, which was really exciting. I absolutely adore Rick. And it's funny. I've been to that place and that, that studio. So was it the, was it this library up in Laurel Canyon? Yes. It was the library at the Laurel Canyon house. Yeah. A great place. Cool. Well, what do you want to add about the film that I didn't get Actually, to ask Miller, about? Miller drive, I should say that, that house, not the Laurel Canyon where we recorded because he had a house on Laurel Canyon where everyone recorded. Not that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, no, it's so funny. The, the first time I was there, he had me come up there for the library to hear some Neil Diamond stuff. And I know you gotta go. And, I'm like, what is that in the background? And he's like, oh, that's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They're recording downstairs. Don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like, yeah. He's like, hey, just you're here to hear Neil Diamond, but it was hilarious. Cool. What do you want to add that we did not get to talk about? Not Nothing really, but that reminds me, like when we were working on our first record, I remember we're in this basement at, at his studio, at his house, and the same house that has the library that you mentioned. And and I guess he had a... He had, he had uh, Tom Petty over for dinner with his wife. And, and so we're working and suddenly Rick walks in with Tom Petty. Tom Petty goes, hey, how's it going? You know, like, <laughs> and we're like, and Darren had just rolled up this fat joint. It was just him and me sitting on the couch. And I think Sylvia Massey was, was engineering. So she was there and, and he just goes, oh, we're just doing some music. He goes, you want to hit? And he just goes, don't mind if I do. And he came and smoked a joint with us. And that was Rick's house. Like you're saying, like one day you would have, you know, this this artist there, that are it's just amazing. Amazing being in that mix, I think. It was amazing. Dude, yeah. I mean, now I'm jealous because I got to meet Petty a couple times. I never got to smoke with him, though. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, that guy was a brilliant wordsmith, too. Was there any, when you think back to that conversation, were there any just pearls of wisdom that came out of smoking with Tom Petty? Because what a freaking great lyricist. I think we just played him our music because he had, a, he had, you know, we were working on new music and, and I don't remember you know what we played him but first record we were like hey you want to hear a track he's like sure and we just played a song i think or something <laughs> and then he went up for dinner with rick and we kept on working it was it was uh, yeah that's awesome cool good seeing you as always yeah great seeing you talk again soon yeah definitely stay safe you too thanks hey this is steve balton you've been here on my turning point with special guest serge tankin thanks It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 